uh, Bob Costas interviewing Mickey Mantle. And what made it an astounding interview was that um, the emotion of Mickey Mantle. Now, he uh, consistently ranks as one of the most popular, most famous names around the world when it comes to sports figures. And in this interview, uh, Mantle really opened himself up to some of the questions that uh, Bob Costas asked. And uh, I want to share a portion of that with you now. Uh, Mickey Mantle said that one of his reoccurring dreams after he retired from baseball in 1969 was this. He said he was a New York Yankee, for those of you who didn't know that. He said, I used to dream of going back to Yankee Stadium, and it was locked. I couldn't get in. And so I would go around the stadium, and I found a hole in the fence, and I crawled through this hole in the fence, and I went into the stadium. And there, he said, in my dream, and this happened repeatedly to him, he would dream this, he said, there I, I would go up to the plate and I'd strike out. Or I'd try to steal a base. He wasn't noted for stealing bases, but uh, he had bad legs. But anyhow, he said, I'd try to steal a base and I'd get thrown out. Or I'd be in the outfield and I'd make an error when I was trying to field the ball. And he said, this dream came up over and over again, and I always felt like I was letting somebody down, that I was failing. He said, his comment was, and I quote, I feel like I should have done more. Now, can you imagine Mickey Mantle saying, I feel like I should have done more? He hit some homers over 600 feet. He's one of the all-time greats in batting. And he said, I feel like I should have done more. Then, as he was talking to Bob Costas, Mantle also spoke of his alcoholism problem, his drinking problem. And he said that he felt like he let everybody down. And Costas probed, and he said, you mean you feel like you let baseball down? And with tears streaming down his face, he said, no, I let my family down. And he talked about some of the struggles in his family. It was a moving interview for uh, all those of us who were able to see it. Now, I sat there thinking, wow, here is, uh, you know, a guy that every boy would dream of being like, a home run hitter, a baseball superstar. And here he is towards the end of his life with these feelings of regret, this lack of confidence, this feeling like I didn't do enough, I should have done more. I said, that's astonishing to me that Mickey Mantle would feel like this towards the end of his life. Now, this morning, I want to talk to you about confidence. Are you a person with a lot of confidence, a little confidence, no confidence? Where, and the question I really want to ask today is, where is your confidence? Where is your confidence? Now, we've been going through the Old Testament and uh, what we call Old Testament challenge. This is the last Sunday in that, and then we'll be in the Advent season. And as I asked the question, where is your confidence, I thought, you know, I better look up this word. So I did. And in the dictionary, just so we nail this down, there are a variety of definitions, but it says this. Confidence, a feeling of or consciousness of one's powers or the reliance on one's circumstances. The quality or state of being certain. A relation of trust and intimacy, assurance, aplomb, those are confidence. Now, sometimes we say, I'm going to hold something in confidence, meaning I'll keep it a secret. I won't tell anybody it's protected. We're not using the word in that way today. The literal meaning of confidence, it comes from the Latin word to trust. And it's this idea of having trust in yourself or trust in circumstances, trust in the events. You have confidence. You have assurance. You have aplomb. Diffidence is the opposite of confidence. It's a lack of trust. And so this morning, where is your confidence? And I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about that by lifting up one particular character. But before we get to him, let's review. 
I think we can go through the Old Testament and up to the point we're at in, in about two minutes. You think? Uh, sure. Well, Buddy's always an encourager. She thinks we can do it. Uh, let me put up this slide, and we're going to start in the book of Genesis and uh, with creation. The early chapters of the Bible open with God creating the heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 3 through chapters 11, we introduce sin, and sin comes into the world. And uh, there's a lot about sin in, in those chapters. Then we move on to the patriarchs. And uh, I suppose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could stand for the patriarchs, those great biblical characters that uh, defined God's work as he began to develop his people. Then from the patriarchs, we go into captivity and the exodus. In the books of Exodus, we're coming through the first five books of the Bible now. And then, of course, Moses is raised up as the Redeemer to lead the people out of their slavery in Egypt. That's called the Exodus. And they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses dies there in the wilderness, as do all those people except two who came out of Egypt. And then there's the conquest. And that's really where we picked up with the Old Testament challenge. We talked about the conquest, and now today we're going to talk about the kings. Now, you see the conquest, the books of Joshua. You remember in October we looked in the book of Joshua briefly. Judges, that uh, very difficult book to read, all sorts of mayhem. And then uh, we come to Ruth, 1 Samuel, and Kings. And this morning as we wrap up this section, we're really beginning the season we would call of the kings. Unfortunately, we can't go through all of that, but we're going to introduce the first king today. So I encourage you to find your outline in the worship folder, if you would, and... Uh, Let's look at the early chapters of 1 Samuel. And I want you to meet Saul, King Saul. John Ortberg, a pastor now in Menlo Park at a Presbyterian church, has written this, quote, Saul's life is a great example of how not to live. And generally speaking, in the Bible, you can look at characters, all excluding Jesus, you can look at characters and raise them up and say, here are some characteristics we could follow. Here are some, some we should not follow. And every single character except Jesus would have those characteristics, things you should not do because they're human. Saul seems to have a lot of them. And um, I must admit to a high level of frustration today because I really love the book of 1 Samuel. It is a great book to read. And I hope you've read through it in our reading guide. It's a good book to read with your children. There are lots of wonderful stories there about some great people. But uh, as Saul is talked about in the... Uh, book of Samuel. We will have to skip over much of the information, but let's look at it uh, briefly. In uh, chapters 9 and 10, that's where we're going to be for a moment, we introduce, uh, we're introduced to Saul as uh, a young man who is from the family of Kish. That's his dad's name. Now, don't confuse it with Kish. And when we meet Saul, the story that grabs our attention, we're introduced to him, but the story that grabs our attention is that uh, the donkeys have been lost. It's an odd way to meet a character. But they, this is a farming, agricultural community. The donkeys are lost. The dad says to his adult son, Saul, go find the donkeys, take a helper. So they go out and they look for the donkeys. And they're about to run out of the provisions. They haven't found the donkeys, so they... Saul says, let's go home, and his helper suggests, no, we should ask the seer, S-E-E-R, the seer, which is the same as a later-day prophet, we should ask the seer if he knows where our donkeys are. Now, the most famous person in Israel at this time is a great man. His name is Samuel. We met him a few sermons ago. And he he is a seer or prophet. He's a priest. He's a judge. He's all these things rolled into one. And he is God's person for the country. He 
He is the great man of that day, and he was a great man. And so it suggested, let's go see the seer to help, get help for our donkeys. Now, as they do that, they come to Samuel, and uh, they find him. They don't even know it's Samuel, but they say, can we find the seer? And he says, I'm the seer. And uh, God has already told Samuel that uh, his sons won't rule, that there will now be a king. And God's already set this up. So Samuel knows what's going on. And he sees Saul, and he says, oh, my, Saul, all the eyes of Israel are on you. Everybody's looking at you. Now, what was Saul doing? He's looking for donkeys. He's a donkey finder. And Saul must have, he said, what? And it sounds a little bit like Gideon because Saul's immediate reply says, don't you know I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a little tribe? And then he says, don't you know I'm of the family of Kish? We're just little farmers. Now, he couldn't say that he was little physically because he wasn't. He was a big guy. But he, he's shocked by Samuel's greeting. Samuel says, by the way, don't worry about your donkeys. They've been found. And I want you to come to dinner tonight. We're having a feast, and I'd love for you to come. All young men like to eat, so Saul said, sure. And Samuel said, you come, spend the night with me, and tomorrow you'll get your donkeys and be on your way. And so they have a feast that night. Saul gets put at the head table, and he's also given the best portion of meat. And so that everybody there knows there's something special about Saul. And Saul's sitting there wondering, what on earth is going on? The next morning he gets up and Samuel says, I'd like to have a word with you this morning. Let's, let's do something. And he anoints his head with oil saying, you're going to be the first king of Israel. Now imagine the shock on poor Saul. He says, by the way, here's how to find the donkeys and so forth. And so that's the beginning. Now, there are two other things you need to know. As he goes forth, and this is cited in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 and following, um, there are two things that happen. It says the Spirit of the Lord comes on Saul, so something spiritual happens in his life. Secondly, it says God gave him a new heart or made him a new person. And so this happens to the king could, is the back door locked? Excuse me, but somebody's trying to get in. I'm sitting here worried about the church being locked up. Thanks, Joe. Um, as, as Saul is anointed in this kind of private ceremony, he goes away. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him with power, and he ends up prophesying something he'd never done before. And people say, wow, is Saul among the prophets? And so... Uh, this happens to him. Now he finds the donkeys, goes on home. And here's a little indication that uh, there's something interesting coming up later on. I want to read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 10. All this has happened. He's been anointed king, told by Saul, you're going to be the king. Uh, God's spirits come upon him. He's prophesied. And he gets home. And Saul's uncle says this to him, where did you go? And Saul, Saul replied, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Now, wouldn't the door be wide open to explain God's will? It seems to me like it is. Saul said this to his uncle, quote, he told us that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingship of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Interesting. Now, a couple of other comments that I want to share with you. 
Um, later in this chapter, there's a public crowning of Saul as king of Israel. So all Israel is told, we've got a king, God's giving you a king, here he is. And as we're told that, there's this public ceremony, he's crowned king. Now, this is hard to imagine, but picture it in your mind if you would. All Israel has gathered together, Samuel's there to anoint him and crown him king, and do you know what happened? They can't find him. (laughs) It's like this morning, you know, Ted's done with worship and the singing, and he says, where's Steve? I don't know, he's in the bathroom, go get him. Or he's hiding in the sub-basement, you know, bring him up to preach. They can't find Saul. And so they have to seek the Lord. And he says, well, he's hiding among the baggage. And so they go to the baggage room and bring Saul out of the coat closet, sort of, and say, now here's your new king. And that's Saul's beginning. It makes you wonder about his confidence level. Now, let me review something with you as we move on in Saul's life. First of all, the first thing we're told about Saul before he becomes king is he is a great, handsome, kingly-looking guy. He looks like a king. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's a big guy. Kings ought to be big, right? And he is. Not only that, Samuel, the best guy in the world to anoint you king, anoints him king and tells him, God's with you. This is God's plan. So he's got a message. You're going to be the king. Not only that, God gives him a new heart, which reminds us God does not call us to do something without giving us the equipment to do it. And so he gives him a new heart. He gives him his spirit. And not only that, when Saul goes off to his first battle, some of the people are saying, this guy's no king. How can this happen? So there are, there are always critics of God's plan and of leaders. And that happens in Saul's life. Saul goes forth, and in chapter 11, he wins his first battle, and he rightly says, to God be the glory. God gave me this victory. So it looks like it's starting well. But that's the end of the good news about Saul. Now, as Saul begins well, winning his first battle... But the highlight reel from there is more like a low light reel. Let me just go through a litany of the next years in Saul's life. In the next battle, he goes forth. He's supposed to wait for Samuel to come and sacrifice. He gets tired of waiting. He sacrifices himself. Now, he's a king, not a priest. He should have waited. He doesn't. Then another time, as he's going forth in battle and the men are fighting hard and things are going well, and he makes this kind of ridiculous pronouncement. He says, okay, guys, the army cannot eat until we get victory. And they almost die from fasting because they're so weak they can't fight anymore. And so there's a little bit of foolishness involved in that. Another time, Samuel says, here's exactly what you're to do in this battle. And he he does about half of it, doesn't do the rest, and then makes up a lie about it and says, well, that's what the people wanted. He doesn't carry out God's orders. And then the final thing, final two things we'll note is his jealousy with David. You remember the story of of David and Goliath. And a great victory comes through David. And rather than celebrating that, Saul becomes jealous, insanely jealous, and spends the rest of his life pursuing David in this madman-like thing. And finally, his life ends after he consults a witch and dies the next day in battle. It's, It's a tragic ending to what could have been such a wonderful life. And that's the life of Samuel. And I go back to what John Ortberg said at the beginning, the quote I gave you. Saul's life is a great example of what not to do. Now, in your outline, I've given you several questions, and I want to go through those questions. And, again, because of time, we're not going to delve into each question. But I encourage you to think about this as you think about where your confidence is or where your confidence should be. 
is your confidence in one of these areas? And the first question is this. Do you put your confidence in human pedigree? That is, is your confidence in your abilities, your family name, your status in life? Do you think, well, everything's going to be okay in life because of who I am or from where, where I came from or even from the country I live in? Is your confidence in human pedigree? Or another question. Do you put your confidence in human might? You remember Samson, strongest man in the Bible? His confidence was in his own strength. What happened when the Lord left him? No strength. Now, human might is usually not a solution to our problems. Strength is usually not the solution to our problems. That's demonstrated in our own day. Surely no one would argue that we are the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. But is our might and our military strength going to produce peace in the Middle East? doesn't look like it. So strength and confidence are not the same thing. Another question. Do you put your confidence in human intelligence? Oh, this is a good one, being so close to Fuller, etc. I'm sorry. Um, do you put your confidence in human intelligence, your ability to figure things out and make decisions? Is your confidence in your cranium? Is your confidence in science? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a pedigree or power or prestige or brilliance or intelligence. It's not that these things are bad. They're good. But the question is, where is our confidence? And I want to review for you a list of the seven sins of Saul uh, and to encourage you, where is it that we need to stop in life and back up and place our confidence somewhere else. So here are Saul's seven sins, and let's just put them up there all at once if we could. Uh, the sin of impatience, the sin of pride, blaming, greed, spiritual evasiveness, false repentance, spiritual blindness. You could do a seven-part series on Saul's sins. As you look over those, are any of those particularly relevant to you? And if they are, we want to put up a big stop sign and say, Stop, because we need to back up and say our confidence should not be there. Where is your confidence? Now, I've got some other questions for you as we wrap this up. Do you put your confidence in human entertainment? I think this is a big one in our day. It is amazing to me, and maybe I'm off on a sidebar here, but to me it's awful sad the amount of time on TV that is given over to celebrities. Who cares that... Tom Cruise got married again and spent three and a half million dollars to do so. I mean, our, but our, our society is built around this sort of adoration of celebrities, and we think, if only I could be like Mickey Mantle. That's not going to help your confidence. And this morning we need to look at, is our confidence in human entertainment? Or is our confidence in false religions? And we don't have time to flesh this out, but I refer you to the end of Saul that in the end, instead of seeking God, he sought a witch and he died the next day in battle. In fact, if we could fast forward through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and into the books of Chronicles, the Chronicles are a theological history of Israel. And it's interesting to see how they're written because when they sum up Saul's life, you know why Saul is criticized, what he did wrong? The criticism of the writer of Chronicles is Saul died because he did not seek the Lord. And David is praised because he did seek the Lord. 
And that's the difference. And this morning, as you think about your confidence, whether it's low, it's high, where is your confidence? I want to conclude with a story from the life of David. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, you know the story, but I think it fits so well with what we're talking about this morning. Uh, David is a shepherd boy tending the sheep. And who was, who was the king while David was a boy? Saul. Whew. I was going to have to back up. Very good. It's King Saul, and they're fighting the Philistines. And, and this particular day, you remember, the Philistines are, are uh, spread across a, a mountainside here. The armies of God, the Israelis, or the Hebrew children, are on this side, Saul and his men. And as they get ready to fight, uh, these two battles, or these two uh, armies are set here. And you remember the story, out of the Philistine army comes this giant of a man named Goliath, nine feet tall. And every day he'd come down to the valley and he'd curse God, he'd curse Israel, he'd curse Saul. And he'd say, hey, let's settle this man on man. I'm here. Send me your best man. Whoever wins, wins it all. Winner take all. We don't have to have all these men fight. We'll just fight one on one. And if I win, the Philistines rule. If Israel wins, Israel rules. And you remember the story. It goes on and on. David is sent by his father to bring provisions to his brothers who are in the army. And he shows up, and as he spends time there, he hears this conversation, and he's just dumbfounded. Who is this pagan insulting our God? And so he quizzes his brothers about this and gets in trouble. He asks others. And then he goes to Saul. And I want to read to you from uh, chapter 17. Because I think it's very instructive in this idea of confidence. Now, remember, David volunteers to go fight Goliath. And he tries on Saul's armor. It doesn't fit. He said, I can't use that. I'm not, I don't know how to use it. So he takes it off. And here's what David says to Saul. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And it, if it turned against me... I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defiled the armies of the living God. Now let me stop. Do you think that's a confident young man? That's a lot of confidence. Now, what did his brothers think about that? They thought he was arrogant. Saul probably thought he was arrogant, but Saul's a king. He didn't care about a few human lives. Let the kid go try, you know. It doesn't matter if we lose him. We got more. And so here's Saul's speech to the king about how he's going to come up against Goliath. It's huge confidence. So confidence is not a wrong thing. But where was his confidence? Now, God had skilled David, as we later learn, with a slingshot. And so he knew what he could do. He knew, he knew I can throw this rock around and send it right into the forehead of that guy. I'm going to knock him out. And you know the story. He knocked him out, got up there, took Goliath's own sword, cut off his head. The battle was the Lord's. But what was in, what was in David's heart during this time as he talks? Was he just bragging because God had gifted him to, shoot a, to, to use a slingshot? No. Listen to what he says. Before Saul, David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion... And from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of the Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. I hope God does save you, boy. Go on. And of course, God saved him. Do you see the point? David had this huge ability, lots of gifts given to him by God. 
But he knew where they came from, and his confidence was always in the Lord. And he looked to the Lord throughout his life to guide him along the way. And when he made some huge mistakes, he went back to the Lord and brokenheartedly said he was sorry and asked for God's help to go forward. And so this morning I want to ask you, where's your confidence as you came in here? Where is your confidence? Is it in your own abilities? Is it in your circumstances? And remember that idea of confidence has trust. It's the idea of trust. Where is your trust this morning? Is it in your bank account, your career? Where is it? And where should it be? One last example. The Apostle Paul, of course the great missionary, was struggling one time. He had a problem. And in that struggle, he sought the Lord. In fact, he said, I prayed three times. It was likely a physical problem, maybe eye troubles, maybe some other sickness. And he said, I prayed and prayed to God. And God just seemed to say, Saul, I'm not going to heal you. I'm not going to cure you. So where did Saul's confidence, Paul's confidence go? Did it go in the toilet? Where did it go? Well, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, here's what Paul said. He said, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. So here's Paul's conclusion. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then am I strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now this morning, you may really be strong in lots of ways. That's great. Thank God. You may be weak in some ways. I'm sorry, but don't discourage. Have your confidence in the Lord, as Paul did during his time of weakness. The question this morning is, as you face Christmas, as you face your life, where is your confidence? It should be in the Lord, is it? Let's pray. As we pray this morning, I want to lift this prayer to the Lord for all of us. And I encourage you to uh, pray silently. Trust. What do we trust? Whom do we trust? Where is our trust? Lord, this morning we turn to you. Forgive us for trusting in things to thrill us. Forgive us for trusting in people to please us. Forgive us for trusting in weapons and strength to secure us. Forgive us for trusting in science to save us or medicine to make us mature, whole. Today we turn to you. We turn back to you. With the apostle we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen each one of us today. Send us out by your power that we may live confident lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.